Hello and welcome to The Domain of Women, a podcast highlighting the stories and ideas of women in social sciences. I'm Olivia Maynor, and today I will be taking you inside the field of history with historian Annalise Hines. Annalise is currently a professor at the University of Oregon and recently released her first book, Mahjong, A Chinese Game in the Making of Modern American Culture. We had such a wonderful conversation and talked all about the importance of history and what it's like to be a woman who studies history. I'm so excited for you to listen to it, so let's just jump right into my interview with her. So my name's Annalise Hines, and I am a historian at the University of Oregon. My, my own areas of expertise um, are about the uh, interrelated histories of gender, race, and sexuality with a focus on modern United States history, so from the late 19th through the 20th centuries. Uh, also looking at trans-Pacific history between the United States and China in the same time period. I've always been super interested in history, and I was curious as to what brought her to wanting to study history in the first place. I also wanted to know about what made her want to study race, gender, and sexuality, because she mostly teaches courses related to those topics. Here's what she had to say. Yeah, um, well, I'm interested in in history more generally uh, because I think it is um, a profoundly important way to understand how our world uh, developed into um, the world we know it today, and also to unlock some ideas and understandings about how um, history and therefore the future is not preordained. There was no single path that it had to take. And so understanding what in history we call contingency, um, that at any given moment, there are many possible futures, but not all futures are equally likely. Um, and so how and why things change, how and why things stay the same, and therefore also how we can um, participate in shaping the world we want to live in. Um, so I think that those, those are really important uh, things that we learn from history always. Um, and when I was an undergraduate, uh, the course that I was already interested in history, um, but I began taking courses in women's history um, and African American history. And those courses really profoundly changed the way that I could see the society that I had grown up in and that I um, lived with in, in profoundly different ways, things that I had taken um as you know quote natural or things that i had assumed were um consistent throughout history particularly clear around ideas of gender and race and sexuality um i when i when i saw them as historical products when i understood how they had changed over time it really transformed everything it really changed the way i lived and the way that i um understood myself and um, the, the kind of foundational aspects of uh, human society. And so that, that was a really thrilling experience. Um, and it definitely made me want to keep digging, keep learning more. Um, and I, and when I was an undergraduate, I, you know, was thinking about what, what I might do next, um, what were career possibilities. And uh, I 
did what you're doing. I started interviewing uh, people who were doing things that I thought I might want to do. Um, and that definitely included uh, professors and academics. Um, and I learned a lot about the kind of um, spectrum of experience of people who are in academia. But I, one of the pieces of advice that I got was um, to explain to really explore and try out other things that I might be interested in. Um, because at the time, and this has only become more true, uh, what is the sad fact is that that um, uh, higher education, teaching in higher education, particularly in fields like the humanities and social sciences, is really um, uh, a shrinking opportunity. Um, and that has again really accentuated since the time that I was an undergraduate and uh, and so I, I pursued other things I did um, education and social work for a few years and I really loved them both. Um, and at the same time, I felt myself be really pulled towards the. Um, the ideas and the information that I learned in history and that I really wanted to continue to engage with on a very deep level with original research and through teaching. Um, and so that's what pulled me back to pursue uh, an advanced degree in history. I found her book Mahjong, A Chinese Game in the Making of Modern American Culture, to be absolutely fascinating. I knew pretty much nothing about the history of Mahjong in America, and I was glad that I had the chance to talk with Annalise about what she learned. Here's her response to me asking her what the most interesting part about studying the history of Mahjong was. Hmm, it was a really a fascinating project that I continued to enjoy, um, uh, which I feel very fortunate about. A lot of people kind of burn out on their, <laughs> their subjects of their dissertation, and I just continued to uh, find it fascinating for a dozen years. <laughs> And uh, I think that one of the things that I loved about the project was how much it resonated with people on a really personal level. So, um, and, and I think I found that uh, surprising as well in the sense that there were aspects that were extremely consistent. Uh, this is particularly true for the children of women who played in the 1950s and 60s. So baby boomers who are today, you know, of retirement age often. And the way that they described the experience of falling asleep to their mothers, playing mahjong and the clicking of the tiles and the laughing of their voices and the cigarette smoke and the, you know, the, the snacks that they might be able to sneak off with or, or the leftovers of the special food that they could eat the next day. It is, I mean, really extremely consistent um, word for word sometimes, sometimes the specific things that they remember eating, the bakery goods, um, depending on where they were living, you know, if they were in Brooklyn, Ebinger's Bakery was uh, the place um, that people would get special treats. And so um, that was surprising to me, uh, that there was such a strong cultural pattern across place um in a time period uh when i think it was also something that mahjong became something for jewish women that a lot of women would have benefited from and enjoyed at that time who faced similar pressures uh of being young mothers in 1950s america and didn't have access to because of the ways that uh 
mahjong became a part of the specific kinds of leisure patterns that were developed specifically in Jewish communities. Um, and all of those things surprised me in some way. Um, you know, yes, the consistency, the widespread nature of this, also how and why Jewish American women seem to have um, tapped into something and been able to tap into something that was quite unique. Um, and I'm interested to see if other people do research on other um, regions and groups and find some other parallels of a time when women could actually transform domestic space temporarily into a place of gathering and fun um, for women only. <laughs> um, that uh, um, perhaps a, that did exist, but uh, it is certainly not widespread at that time. And, and I think that that is really fascinating. Before I settled on the name, the domain of women for this podcast, I was thinking of the name Pressure and Expectations. I was fascinated by listening to my guests talk about the pressure and expectations put upon them by people in their fields, and by titling the podcast with it, I would be directly acknowledging this aspect of social sciences. Obviously, I didn't end up going with the name, but the idea of pressure and expectations became the through line for the show. I asked Annalise Hines about if she's felt pressure or had people expect her to study specific things based on her identity, and here's what she had to say. Um, I, you know... Partially because I what I what I am studying lines up with some identity categories that I inhabit. So, for example, you know, I um, I'm a woman. I'm I'm teaching women's history. There's a kind of over obvious overlap there. Um, my next project focuses on lesbian feminism. I identify as lesbian. You know, there are lots of things that um, I am pursuing that line up with categories that people might see as making sense that hasn't been that wasn't as true in my first book which was about mahjong um, a chinese game and uh the way it has become a part of different aspects of american culture and society and that overlapped with jewish american history as well i'm not jewish or chinese and so there were um that's not particularly uh gendered but it was certainly i think confusing for people at times I know that is something that affects particularly faculty of color very, very strongly, where, um, you know, a colleague of mine who's Korean American uh, taught French history at the university I taught at university in Dallas and um, Dallas, Texas. And, and I think for him, there was a kind of constant um, surprise or assumption that he would be teaching French history, uh, even though, of course, we don't actually assume that only French teacher people are teaching French history. So I think that that is something that 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 is especially true um, in uh, racial terms. I think that has been true historically for um, women uh, in history. I think that is less true now than it used to be. I am always curious to hear the responses to how has being a woman shaped your experience in your field? Because it's not really about how they see themselves, it's about how others see them. Here are her thoughts on what it means to be a woman in the field of history. Yeah, um, you know, uh, history and um, academia more generally, so my professional path, in other words, um, have change to be more um, inclusive of women you know, over the last 40 years. Um, there has been some really significant changes in a, in a 
um, environment that used to be almost exclusively male and some and often aggressively. Um, so when I was in college, uh, my uh, a faculty member in the history department was the second woman in the um, department who to have gotten tenure. And that was not long that long before I was a student there. Um, and I was a student that, you know, I went to undergraduate in 99. She had joined the faculty in the 80s. And she, the first woman who had been hired in the history department was harassed out where, you know, her, her male colleagues would show up to faculty meetings with aprons on and things like this. And this is, you know, again, in the 80s, this is really not very long ago at all. Um, and my experience has been nothing like that. I mean, it's been, it's, it's quite different. At the same time, the structures within it are still, the overall structure of graduate school and academia are built on expectations that um, the people within those systems are often have a trailing spouse that supports them um, doing unpaid labor. Uh, and there's so much that's kind of <laughs> structured as though you have a, uh, a, a wife who doesn't have a career of her own and that is um, the, her career is really supporting you. <laughs> and, um, and so there's a lot that is still structured that way in terms of, um, and, and some things that are difficult to change, like how long it takes to get um, a degree, some of that time is necessary. The difficulties of uprooting you and your family potentially repeatedly to go to graduate school and then um, find jobs, those problems have only gotten worse with the shrinking job market. Um, and so it, those, they're not clear paths forward, but they do, um, those are things that people are talking about. And um, uh, it, it's not entirely clear how to, how, to, how to make those better, but it does put particular pressures on families where there are people with partners who also have careers. Um, there are lots of ways that the labor has been, um, academic labor has been, uh, has grown over time in certain ways without, well, uh, without recognizing the kinds of unpaid labor that were often assumed to be a part of it from the beginning. Um, and certainly in terms of reproduction, the ways that um, the timeline of graduate school and early career really cover um, the reproductive years of people who were who would be having children um, and that affects uh, men differently than affects people who would be bearing and um, birthing children <laughs> so um, that those are ways that are kind of structural pieces um, and and for me that has that has shaped um, my decision not to have children even though that is something that I would have wanted as well. Um, and so that that's that's honestly the biggest piece. Now my wonderful co-host Shoshigioka is going to join me to talk in response to Annalise's ideas about women existing within male-dominated spaces, as well as the reproductive years. She was talking about sacrifices and having yeah. to always think about, can I have kids? Can I have family? Can I have, right? That burden, it, it, it is very structural. Like, I remember when I was in my doctoral program, the first meeting that we had with the dean of um, 
the college, which is a college of education, is that, again, it's a male, older male, uh -huh. you know, tenured, he's a dean, highly successful, quote-unquote. He told us, looking directly at some of the women in the program, is that, are you ready for this? And I did stick with it. Once you're in this program, just know the divorce rate is really high, especially for those women who think you can handle both family and job and, and school. Because I was working full time, right? Yeah. I mean, he was like laughing and joking, oh. but it was sad. Like, yeah. Well, good luck with that, right? Oh. And a couple of other female, you know, colleagues of mine, and we just looked at each other like, did he just say this? Oh. Um, so it's not only it's baked into the structure of the academia, but that's the culture. Mm -hmm. right? And um, when that kind of culture is perpetuated by somebody like the dean of the college, right, who represents the school, um, supposed to lead the school, um, that's again, so it's normalized, right? Yeah. Um, in making structural changes, People think that it's just impossible, but the structure and systems are maintained by individuals. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's why what you are doing, Olivia, by having these conversations and giving people voices and have their stories be told and share those stories, um, is the only way that we can really change the mindset of people who are part of the structures, right? Because yeah. again, we don't know. We don't know what to change. Mm -hmm. And if we, if you didn't take those race and ethnic studies classes or IP history classes, you probably wouldn't have thought too much about historical, historical legacy of racism and yeah. sexism and all of that, right? Yeah. Um, so. Again, that's why we have to have the knowledge, right? And the mm -hmm. knowledge really comes with telling story. Um, not his story, but it's more like her story. Her story. <laughs> <laughs> we should change the word. We the should. Story. We really should. <laughs> and you know what's happening with Roe v. Wade right now? And mm -hmm. I am really scared. Yeah. Like, why are we having this again? Why are we having to repeat this history? Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the reasons why people need to speak up yeah. and share our experiences and our stories. And I'm hoping that this podcast can help spark conversations about what's happening in the social sciences and what changes could be made so that what's being studied across disciplines better reflects the people of the world. So what change does need to happen in the field of history? And how do we even go about it? Well, if it's all right, I'll answer kind of two different ways to interpret that question. Um, uh, this isn't about changing the field. It is about changing the way people understand the field. Um, so I think that the way most people think of history is really limited um, and it's shaped by how history is often taught in the K-12 education system as memorizing names and dates, kind of a test-based model where um, it's a lot about just short-term holding on to things and then regurgitating them. And that is the opposite of what studying history is all about. Studying history is actually about 
understanding uh, the deep kinds of questions that have shaped societies across time, across massive difference. It's about storytelling. It's about asking why. It's about both seeking connection across difference uh, and, and understanding the ways in which we as current historical actors are also quite separated from and different from people in other times. Um, and that all of those things work together to be so important for being a, a citizen of the world and for participating um, in our own society, as well as, again, relating across difference, but also respecting difference. Um, and really essential for uh, a globalizing world. And it's fascinating. It's just endlessly fascinating. So I, I wish people understood what the study of history actually was and why it was important. And I wish that we would um, substantially increase our society's support of the study of history for children, for adults, um, for certainly for college students, uh, and um, really invest in the possibilities of, of deep history education. And, and we're living in a time where history is on the front lines of the culture wars and is profoundly politicized right now um, and is seriously under threat uh, by legislators who are invested in ideological um, control of, of education. And that is undercutting teachers and students' ability to engage with some of these um, deeper understandings, which include uncomfortable understandings that are necessary. Um, and so right now we are living in a particularly precarious time uh, uh, in general, um, and that is uh, related to, uh, I think, misunderstandings of and, and lack of support of, of history. I, I wish I could just, you know, tell incoming students, um, like, talk to yourself 30 years from now, because over and over again, I have, you know, I know older folks who are like, oh my gosh, I wish I knew more about history that I see because of my life experience. I now understand how important um, it is. And I wish I knew more because that helps explain. Um, and anyway, college is a great time to, to do that. And, and then um, I think uh, within the field, um, I, you know, I, one slice of this conversation is, is about making academia and higher education a more humane place to live and work. Um, and I, and I uh, wish that there were um, ways to, I think, push against where um, there have been a lot of um, financial forces in particular and some political forces uh, in shaping higher education in the last 50 years um, that have uh, moved towards a kind of, um, moved towards a model that has, I think, um, not given students enough support and encouragement to pursue learning um, as this really exciting opportunity uh, that will provide them transferable skills across careers, across many different future paths, 
um, that come from things like the liberal arts and the humanities um, and, and, and not just a kind of immediately recognizably cert employment certificate kind of orientation, um, which can in fact trap students in employment fields that might change in the future, right? Lots of things will change um, and they, they may not have had that opportunity for the kinds of education and the liberal arts-based education that will allow them to, to think flexibly, to be flexible in their lives um, and uh, transfer into different opportunities or forge the path that's right for them. Um, and I think that is an enormous loss for our for students and for our society. And it also makes um, higher education a much harder place to live and work for faculty. Um, uh, so that is something that I I, I wish could change in the um, kind of professional aspect of things. Next, Sho and I discussed Annalise's ideas about the importance of history and why it's so important to have history classes that are conveying the truth and acknowledging counter-narratives. Take a listen to what we chatted about. It's almost as if, like, we knew this was coming. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that you get to take um, race and ethnic studies class um, in today's context and the fact that um, Nayak is continuously wanting to teach that class, mm -hmm. knowing that there could be a backlash, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it just happened in Newburgh, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just everywhere. And look at what's happening before that. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And it's, it is, you know, what she said at the very end, it's misunderstanding. And, and also, those are, who want to maintain power and control of white supremacy, wanted to maintain the status quo, because I don't want to lose, right? Um, and it is really too bad that it is politicized because it's not it's not about red or blue. It's no. not about right. It's about understanding human history and how it's really impacted human beings. Mm -hmm. And because I'm not about making students think certain ways. Yeah. My job is to give information um, that's not tainted by certain political powers, right? Because I want you as a scholar to come to your own conclusion. I want you to use your own evidence and come up with your own reasoning and, and make your own claim, right? Yeah. Um, but as, as a, an educator, I need to be able to give you resources that are you know grounded in facts right yeah. and grounded in truth which is told by again it's told by stories right <laughs> and history has been only told by certain groups of people yeah and that's what we have to change mm -hmm. we need that in all aspects we need it in books we need it in television we need it in schools we need it we need it everywhere so that it's normal to it is. use the facts and use our brains. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, that's it. It's kind of all, all, all we need. And that's why I'm just impressed, just beyond impressed with the modalities that you are using, like this project, your film project, that you're a writer, that you're <laughs> an actor, you're a singer, your ability to touch people in so many different ways. 
um, again, you're, you're, you're a gift. Oh, thank you. And with that comes responsibility, okay? And I know you'll carry this. Yeah. And I seriously want to be there. I just want to be able to just, you know, push and just learn alongside you. And I, and thank you for um, being my light. Um, no, um, I, I deeply, seriously, you know, Olivia, um, the current political stuff is just so hard, right? And, yeah. Um, I think education is under attack, serious attack. Yes. And I think it does question our integrity, my integrity as an educator, mm -hmm. uh, with the purpose of, again, pushing you to think, pushing you to think and, and, and do something with the knowledge. Um, if that work is being questioned, then I, I am like, then what am I doing? That is all for this episode. I hope you were able to learn more about the field of history from a female perspective, as well as learn more about the importance of historical truth and the value of history being told from various perspectives. I want to say a huge thank you to Annalise Hines. I loved having the opportunity to sit down and chat with her. She is so inspiring and insightful. If you are interested in her work, you can check out her book, Mahjong, A Chinese Game in the Making of Modern American Culture, linked in the show notes below. You can find me on Twitter at Olivia N. Maynard for podcast updates and other upcoming projects. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you back next time. Bye!